What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of The Arnie's. We are three people destined to be friends for lifetime after lifetime. I'm your host today, Matt Johnson, and Tom Hanks played me with a bad Cockney accent in a previous life. I'm Austin Terry, and I just want to speak my true true. And I'm Keith Baker, but today I'm Keith David. On today's show, we are starting a new format, I guess you could say, and it's called Our Favorite Movies. We're not going to put a time frame on this. You guys just let us know out there if you like it, and we definitely have plans to do more of this in the future. Each time we do one of these episodes, though, one of us will pick one of our favorites, have the others watch it, in this case for the first time, structure the episode however the host wants, and break everything down. Since I am hosting this first episode, the film we are discussing is one of my favorites, and it is Cloud Atlas. But before we get into that, Austin, we just finished up our latest TV series watch-along and review series with WandaVision. How was that? Yeah, man, WandaVision was fun. This week, of course, was the finale. This was the cap-off to our first series in the MCU Phase 4. I think we all had a ton of fun with this series. There's some great moments in the finale as well, so be sure to check that out to hear us break down kind of what we enjoyed and, and, and what we thought could have been done better in the finale of WandaVision. Definitely. But even though WandaVision is done, don't fret, my friends. We will return to this format in less than two weeks when the Falcon and the Winter Soldier starts, so be sure to check those out every Sunday. Besides that, our next main episode this coming Tuesday will be the return of our retrospective and review series on Phase 1 of the MCU with The Incredible Hulk. Keith, when was the last time you saw this movie, and what are you looking for on a rewatch? It's been a long time since I've seen The Incredible Hulk. I think it's probably whenever it first came out, and I think I've only seen this movie maybe once. I'm excited to see Ed Norton back mm. in the MCU, mm -hmm. uh, see what that's like and see and kind of just like compare him and Mark Ruffalo since I, you know, I don't really remember Ed Norton's performance all that much. I don't, I don't even remember what the plot was in The Incredible Hulk. So I'm just going to go into it blind and just have a fun rewatch. And how will it connect? I guess we'll see. Uh, so be sure to keep an eye out for that when it drops. And in the meantime, you have all this other content we mentioned out now wherever you get your podcast. So go give it a listen and let us know what you're liking and what you're not. But now, it is time to get into our episode today. Like we mentioned at the top, we are covering the 2012 sci-fi epic Cloud Atlas. This is one of my favorite movies, and one of the few where I can appreciate the long running time, and it just flies by for me. I've seen it probably five or six times at this point, and I can genuinely say it gets better each time. Today will be interesting, though, since I have that perspective, and Austin and Keith, though, don't, because this is the first time they've ever seen this. So I'm curious how this conversation will go, where I'm a bit more versed in the movie, and they're kind of just coming off of seeing it. So I guess we'll see what happens. Um, before we go on, though, I would definitely recommend everyone out there check it out, because you'll undoubtedly get something from it, whether you like it or not. And if you're on the fence and don't want it spoiled, this is probably your last chance to hop off and come back after you've seen it. So without further ado, we know my basic feelings on this movie. Austin and Keith, I'm excited to get into this. I'm going to open it up to you now. Give me your initial thoughts on Cloud Atlas. Yeah, this was an interesting watch for me. I The only thing I knew about Cloud Atlas going into it was that it's really long. Tom Hanks plays a bald guy at one point, and Matt really likes the movie. So those <laughs> were the three things I had going into this film. Um I didn't quite know how I felt after watching it. I, I knew I really liked it. This is like six different stories. I think there are certainly some of these stories that are way more interesting than some of the other stories. Mm -hmm. And then there was a couple stories that I wish they had kind of been able to give more time to, although that's hard to do because the movie itself is already three hours long. So um, I did really enjoy it. I don't think it's like my new favorite movie or anything like that, but I mm -hmm. certainly liked it more than I expected to just given the runtime and all that. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, I watched it this morning. Right when I woke up and uh, I, you know, I looked at the time clock on it. I was like, oh my God, two hours and 50 minutes. All right, let's go in for the ride. But yeah, 
I enjoyed it. Lots of cool sci-fi stuff in here, which I really liked. Uh, it did. It did remind me a lot of Black Mirror. That's like mm. the that's the the show that kind of comes to my mind whenever I think of this movie. Yeah. I think it did resemble a lot of those sci-fi elements of that show. I think the runtime did not sway me away from it. I mean, I did check the clock every now and then just because I was curious because I just felt like there was so much covered and then I would get to the point where I was like oh man I must be two hours in and I look I was only an hour in I'm mm-hmm. like holy shit like what else are they going to cover in this movie but uh no I enjoyed all the stories there were some things I was I'm confused about but I think I'll, we'll get into that in a little later but uh yeah I enjoyed it overall I guess this actually with this movie this might be the natural place to go Austin kind of set me up for it but I'd be curious to hear just off the top Try and keep it to one. I mean, there's only six. But what was your favorite story and what was your least favorite story? I really enjoyed kind of the post-apocalyptic one with uh, Tom mm-hmm. Hanks and Halle Berry kind of interacting a lot. I think my least favorite, um, I don't know, because they're, they're all so different. So it's hard yeah. to say. I think the least interesting one That's for a good sure. It. Yeah. It's still really good and has some really funny moments. But I, I think it is the one with him stuck in the retirement home. I just think in yes. the scheme of all these other stories, it's the least interesting one. I think I'm in a second Austin. I really liked the uh, Slusha's Crossing. The Tom Hanks and Halle Berry mm-hmm. in the uh, 23, 21 story. I guess the least interesting one for me was probably the letters from uh, Zettelgem. Is that how you say it? Yeah, the Robert Frobisher, the uh, composer. Yeah. Well, I like the acting, and I did kind of like the, the like the story in the beginning of it. I think as it went on for me, though, it got kind of boring, like with the whole composing thing and all that. And it just kind of, I don't know, something about that one just kind of died out for me. But did you like seeing Ben Wishaw, a.k.a. Q, from James Bond? They must have had to take some uh, hedge cutters to his hair, because it's a little oh, bit shorter gosh. in this one than just it a is little in James bit, Bond. But, just a little bit, but still, there's just so much goddamn hair on that boy's head. <laughs> 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 um, uh, yeah, just real quick before we move on, we'll dive into it more later. I think my favorite is Neo Soul, and my least favorite since my first watch and in the last watch. It has one of the best endings, but Adam Ewing, The Pacific Journal, the earliest story is the one that I resonate the least with let's talk about the cast and crew i'll run through it quick so it was written and directed by lana and lily wachowski who are most famous for the matrix films so that's probably where you know them from and it was also directed by tom tickler and now how this works is The Wachowskis directed 1849, the Adam Ewing, and then they directed the future storylines, Neo Soul, and then the far future with Tom Hanks. And Tom Tickler did more of the modern stories. He did uh, the Robert Frobisher. He did Halle Berry, the mystery. And then he did Timothy Cavendish, the 2012 story, the retirement home one you mentioned. So that's how that breaks down. Based on the book Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell. And we don't talk about music too much, but we have to call it out here. And it's also cool because the movie score was composed by Tom Tickler, the director, and then his partners, Reinhold Hale and Johnny Klimek. But huge shout out to Gene Pritzker for orchestrating the entirety of the Cloud Atlas symphony that we hear throughout. As for the cast, I kind of broke it down with the main players who the six that play like a main character at some point, like a narrator, if you will, and then the supporting. So we have Tom Hanks as Zachary, minus that A, Halle Berry as Louisa Ray, Duna Bay as Son Me 451, Jim Broadbent as Timothy Cavendish, Ben Wisha as Robert Frobisher, aka Hairboy, Jim Sturgis as Adam Ewing. And I just wanted to see if you guys could get this. So between these six actors. What is your guess for how many characters they played? Like between the six of them, how many roles did they play all together? Tom Hanks plays the most with six, right? He has a part in every single story, doesn't he? True, true. Yeah, I'm guessing it's probably close to like 20-something characters, right? 
altogether. Oh, you mean total? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, was, I wanted to see what you guys thought. I would say above 20, too. I think Keith is in the right ballpark there. He is. It is 25. But funnily enough, Austin, I guess Tom Hanks has a lot of like bigger roles, but Halle Berry, um, Jim Broadbent, and Jim Sturgis, I believe, are all in all six of the storylines. So they kind of feature in varying degrees. As for supporting, we have James Darcy as Rufus Sixsmith, Zhao Shun as Yuna 939, Keith David, which is our host today, <laughs> Jess Joe Napier, <laughs> David Gaiassi as Atua, Hugo Weaving is in all six storylines as all the villains. You have Susan Sarandon in there as the Abbess, and Hugh Grant, who I just love so much, plays a wide range of villainous characters as well. Between these seven, these actors played 30 different roles. So, wow. Yeah, that was a lot, a big list than we're kind of used to going through, but I do want to break it down the same way. So what were your highlights, guys, between the cast or the crew? Let me know what you liked, what you didn't. And if you are going to call out an actor, I'd like to know which of their characters you liked the most. So I, I want to talk really quick about the Cloud Atlas Symphony, because I remembered from our underrated movies, Matt, you really brought up how much you love the theme. And of course, one of the main arcs in the story is that very theme being composed. Mm -hmm. I guess I expected it to play more of a larger role. I didn't notice the theme until I went and listened to it on Spotify because I'd, I'd heard that it was a really good theme and I didn't notice it during the movie. So I, I almost expected like the theme was going to play a larger role in the story. And then ultimately, other than the, the story where they're composing the theme, I didn't notice it in any of the other five remaining stories. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. Um, again, something for the rewatch. They do mention it, but it's really hard to know unless you're paying attention. But for example, there's a scene where Vivian Ayers, um, the composer that Ben Wishaw's character is working for, he comes in talking about a dream he had. And it's basically he has like, I need you to record this music. I, I had a dream about this weird like underground restaurant and all these peoples had the same face. And I kept hearing this theme. And they're obviously referencing Neo Soul because the main characters have dreams where they experience the past lives as we see. And then if you watch the Neo Soul stuff in uh, the restaurant, it does play the theme, but it's more like obviously not like beautiful piano. It's more kind of like what you would expect from that environment. So it does play throughout, but each storyline, it sounds a bit different. Um, so, it, yeah, I think it is. That's a good point, though, because I certainly didn't notice it the first time because it's kind of hard to know that until you hear it in the composing storyline. So, man, there's so many good people in this. Yeah. movie. it's kind of hard to pick one. Um, well, since I'm Keith David, I'll shout out to Keith David, even though he had kind of had smaller roles. I did like him in this one a lot. Mm -hmm. I will, uh, shout out to Jim Broadbent. I love Jim Broadbent. I think he's hilarious as Timothy, uh, Cavendish mm -hmm. and the whole retirement community thing. That was hilarious of him trying to escape that. He'll be the one to shout out, but I think they were all probably equally good. I think my, my big cast shout out will be Halle Berry. The two standout parts for me from her are the Louisa Ray role and then also the uh, Marinin role. I thought they're, th they're so different from each other and, and I, I thought she played both those parts uh, exceptionally well. Yeah, you guys kind of stole it from me. I love both of those. Uh, and key to that point, it's what what range? I mean, he's so bumbling and goofy as Timothy Cavendish and then like just watching him, for example, as Vivian Ayers or the captain of the ship in the early storyline. It's like, oh, this guy's disgusting. And he, like, there's <laughs> menace to it too. And then like, literally, he's just like slapstick bumbly in the present storyline. So shout out to him. I think the best singular performance in the movie for me is Ben Wishaw as Robert Frobisher. But um, I think I think he gives the most like emotional performance. But I think it's also because the storyline requires it. Um, it's hard not to shout out Tom Hanks, obviously. And I love this movie in part because we get to see Tom Hanks doing different stuff than we see Tom Hanks usually doing. 
And then I also want to shout out real quick Duna Bay as Son Me, who I think is really great. And then one of the supporting roles who I think gets a bit overlooked is James Darcy as Rufus Sixsmith, who is the only character that exists in two storylines, right? Before we move on for the cast and crew, this might also be a fun bit. Was there any kind of like when you're watching the credits, Austin mentioned it a little bit at the beginning, but out of these actors, was there any like, whoa, that was them when you're watching the credits and seeing all the characters they played? Were there any huge surprises for you that you didn't realize when actually watching the movie? My big surprise while watching the credits was a uh was the fact that Hugo Weaving played the evil nurse in the retirement home. Yeah. I, I did not recognize him at all. That, so that makeup on, on that was pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. Nurse Noakes. She was, she was scary. Probably because it's Hugo Weaving. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Hugo Weaving is known for playing great villains, and he literally plays six different ones in this movie. He's only villains. I love it. Uh, what about you, Keith? Any like major standout surprises? I mean, it didn't take long for me to see who he was, but it was surprising at the beginning, and that was Tom Hanks as... Uh, him as evil doctor with the, like the buck teeth and everything like that. Mm-hmm. I didn't see it at first, and then as it went on, then I was like, "Oh, it's Tom Hanks. That's cool." Tom Hanks as the gangster in the intro too was pretty funny <laughs> to me. I'm glad that part for him was, <laughs> was only hilarious. like two minutes long because I could not stand his get up and his accent in that scene. But but the scene itself is pretty fun. Oh, it was so fun. Never seen Tom Hanks do something like that. Like, oh, he cunt. He was talking like Billy Butcher. The accent is horrendous, but it's so funny. He just <laughs> throws that guy off the building. Yeah, I love it's it. Nuts tequila. A couple of fingers. <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> like, I felt bad for the Brits in that scene. Like, oh, my God, this is really <laughs> offensive. Not offensive, just silly. Um, the ones that, I, again, I've seen this movie a lot. The one that I still have trouble seeing through and it, like, shocked me in the first watch. And I still I think it's just really good. The makeup and whatever they used is um, both in the Timothy Cavendish storyline. It's hard for me to tell that Hugh Grant is his brother and also that Ben Wishaw plays his wife that had the affair with Timothy Cavendish. Like, very like, whoa, I, I still have trouble seeing that. That's like one of my big standout surprises as well. All right. It is time for some fun facts and time to pull the curtain back a bit. So I don't have too much with this one, but what I do have, I think, is interesting enough to mention. And this first one, I have mixed feelings on. <laughs> I'm curious what you guys will think. And it will be part of a bigger conversation going forward. So in 2005, while on the London set of V for Vendetta, Natalie Portman gave a copy of Cloud Atlas the novel to Lana Wachowski, who became deeply interested in it. A year later, both Wachowski siblings actually wrote a first draft of the screenplay. Tom Tickwer, a friend of theirs, was invited to co-author And constantly they were keeping in mind observations by the book's author, David Mitchell. So he was kind of weirdly involved as well. And in all those years, here's the part that's kind of... mm, Portman was promised the role of Son Mi, but had to turn it down at the last minute because she got pregnant in 2010. She is given a special thanks in the closing credits. So I want to talk about this. It's weird that Jim Sturgis is a white guy that they just made his eyes thin. I guess look like a Korean. It's part of a bigger conversation. We'll get to it. But how do you guys feel? Because, like, Duna Bay plays a white woman in this movie. Halle Berry plays a white woman in this movie. I don't have a problem with that. I feel like it would have been weird if Natalie Portman was given the main character role as a, a Korean. Do you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Yeah, it's it's kind of like when Scarlett Johansson played that, the ghost in the shell role. Like, yeah. that should not have gone to her, especially because that's a main character. And that movie takes place, I think, in Japan. Explain it to me again. So who, Jim Sturgis played the Asian guy, the white Asian guy. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is I don't have a problem when it's the supporting performances in the story. I think it just would have been weird if Natalie Portman, because uh, Son Mi is the lead character of that story. I feel like that's where it would have been weird. It's just, it's weird to write a Korean character as the main character and then promise it to Natalie Portman. Yeah. Like that's, that's the weird thing about it. Why don't you just not just have an Asian person play an Asian? Yeah, I agree. 
The advocacy group Media Action Network for Asian Americans criticized the film's use of yellowface to allow non-Asian actors to portray Asian characters in the neo-soul sequences. The president, Guy Aoki, also called the lack of blackface being used to portray black characters a double standard. The directors responded that the same multiracial actors portrayed multiple roles of various nationalities and races, not just Asians, across a 500-year story arc showing the continuity of souls critical to the story. So that's obviously the main bit of actual controversy with this movie. So I am curious. It is worth at least talking about. Did any of that not work for you? Jim Sturgis is the most uh, egregious example. Uh, Also, James Darcy and Hugo Weaving are white people playing Koreans or just Asians in that storyline. Did any of that come off as offensive or did you kind of appreciate the idea of using specific actors to fulfill specific roles that kind of felt like they were continuing from other storylines. Did that work or was it too jarring for you? It didn't come off offensive to me because it takes place in a far future. So like, you know, it's like, how do you know that people would look like normal Asian people in the year 2144? People are probably gonna be more mixed in the future anyway. So that's how I kind of saw it. That's a, yeah, that's a fair way to look at it. I can't, I actually kind of make sense. I I never would thought of it that way. What about you, Austin? I guess I just don't see why they needed to do that. I mean, I know the stories are supposed to be interconnected, but they really don't impact each other that much. Like, I don't know why you need Jim Sturgis to play that role in Neo's soul. I get that they're trying to say like, oh, all their souls are connected, but the stories really do feel like separate movies. So I don't think it would have been hard to have like the correct actors play like the minority parts in this movie. I, def- I definitely agree. Um, it is a bit jarring at times, but ultimately I can kind of agree with the filmmakers here. I understand what they're going for, so I can appreciate it in this context. That being said, kind of like Austin already said, it would have been cool if like the Jim Sturgis character had been played by a Korean or Asian actor, and then that actor was used to play other characters throughout with different nationalities. So it would have been nice to see them maybe go a bit further with that. Especially since Hollywood kind of does have a diversity problem too. So it would have been nice to have like a movie of of this calendar, this kind of budget to have actually some minority actors in big roles too. Well said. Well said. I just thought that one was worth mentioning. Let's move on. The movie cost around $100 million to make, making it one of the most expensive independent films. Um, $7 million of that budget came directly from the Wachowskis. They contributed it. The film went through numerous difficulties to land a financial backer, including the studio Warner Brothers. Uh, they wanted to pull it like a bunch of different times. The directors had waived their fees and started putting in their own money just to keep the project afloat. Lana Wachowski credits Tom Hanks with helping get the film off the ground because he inspired many of the cast and crew by being the first to fly to Berlin to begin shooting the film. Basically, during all these meetings, when they're like, we had to pull the plug on the project, Tom Hanks would be in it saying, no, we got to do it. Like, I'll get on a plane right now. And then I saw a quote, somebody said, I guess Tom's on a plane. I guess we'll get on a plane. <laughs> so, yeah, so <laughs> oh, the, Wachowskis, cool. the Wachowskis are seem really grateful to Tom Hanks and his enthusiasm for the project for actually getting it to happen. It sounds like the cast and crew really enjoyed making this movie then, if, if they were able to stick through it through all of that kind of uh, budget being pulled and, and the studio wanting to back out. I bet it had to have been fun for them playing a bunch of different characters. Yeah, we're going to talk about that too. There, there's a really cool section on the Wikipedia for this that I think you guys will really dig that kind of involves that. Um, we mentioned it a little bit already, but Tickware and the Wachowskis filmed parallel to each other using separate camera crews. So this movie basically had two crews. And they rarely interacted with each other because they were in different parts of the world filming these different stories. When they could film together, they did. But for the most part, they were not. Tickworth said that the three directors planned every segment of the film together in pre-production and continued to work closely together through post-production. 
Warner Brothers representatives agreed to the film's 172-minute running time after previously stating that it cannot exceed 150 minutes. So they agreed. So I thought that was just kind of a fun little thing there. Because of the nature of casting on the film, the directors told the actors to think of their roles as a genetic strain rather than a series of individual parts, with actors in one storyline affecting another in different ways. That seems like something only a, like artsy film director can say at a job interview like what am i going to be doing in this role like what, what's my day-to-day work going to be like and then they respond with you're going to be pretending to be a genetic strain yeah it's like a you're a soul you know <laughs> i think it's really cool that they yeah like they had parallel film crews like one going in probably whatever south america and one going in europe or whatever yeah you don't really you don't really hear that too often usually everybody's in the same spot filming filming one scene at a time that's mm-hmm. pretty cool they were able to split that up like that Very strange, but very cool. So we can also talk about our critical reception now. So Cloud Atlas released in 2012. Its earliest premiere was the Toronto Film Festival, uh, where it received a standing ovation. Festival success did not always mean box office success. The film would go on to earn $130 million worldwide against a $129 million budget. Box office bomb. Big time bomb. And the film currently has a 66% on Rotten Tomatoes. So the film released to extremely mixed critical reviews. Uh, For example, legendary movie critic Roger Ebert called it the best film of the year, while Time Magazine called it the worst film of 2012. So critics were extremely divided on this film. For some of the praises, uh, they praised the sheer scope and scale of the film. However, many differed on the actual execution of this said scope and scale. The score, visuals, and editing all appeared to receive universal praise. And the critics that liked the film also praised the ensemble cast and their performances across different roles. Um, Some criticisms, though, included the runtime, the execution of the interwoven stories, and a central theme that seems to get lost by the time the credits roll. Some of the critics felt the film wanted to have a grand message, but didn't know how to convey it. Um, And the critics that disliked the film also disliked the cast playing a multitude of parts, with NPR calling the disguises egregious and saying, I like Tom Hanks, but when it comes to transforming, he's no Peter Sellers. It's always, hey, it's Tom Hanks. I can get that, the distracting element, but... Keith, why don't you kick us off since this was your first time and Austin, jump in as well. Uh, what do you guys think? I mean, a bunch of positives in there, a bunch of negatives. I love the dichotomy of like Roger Ebert, it's the best and times like it's the worst. Like we say mixed a lot, but like literally somebody said it was the best movie of the year and someone said it was the worst. So it's like the definition, the peak of a mixed. But let me know what you guys think. I mean, positives and negatives in there. What do you agree with? What do you disagree with? Yeah, uh, I'll say that I disagree with the fact that Tom Hanks was distracting. I thought he, I think he played all of his parts really well. And I mean, like I said, I forgot that it was Tom Hanks in a lot of them. Mm-hmm. So I'm not really with him on that part. One thing I will kind of agree is how the message does kind of get lost towards the end. I'm still kind of like wondering what the message is in all of this. I really agree with the praise of the editing. Even though this is six different stories, the way they interweave it is really cool. However, I do also agree with the criticism of the like execution of the woven stories. I had a hard time really figuring out how these stories are supposed to impact each other. That's kind of the biggest criticism that I agree with. It, it was kind of interesting because all the critics that liked the movie also liked all the performances, and all the ones that didn't like the movie hated all the performances. Um, so I, I do disagree that the disguises were terrible. I yeah. think there were a few that didn't work at all, but then there were some where like, I didn't even recognize that actor until I saw the cast and crew roll up in the credits. Yeah, I, I actually do agree and with some of the stuff they're saying, even with the, when it comes to the negative. I guess what I would say is Keith mentioned Black Mirror, which always has these weird grand messages or just crazy reveals and stuff. And I guess when you're watching this movie, it kind of feels like at times, oh, wow, what's this all going to be about? Where's it going to end? 
and it feels like it should be grander because the movie is so grand and like ambitious. And then ultimately the theme is kind of just love and connection, pretty basic. And when I first saw it, I kind of agreed with the critics like, I really love this, but yeah, I guess by the end it's like, that's it? That's all you got? But after I've watched it again, I kind of just appreciate that it's just such a simple theme and message and like love transcends and all that. Like there is elements of destiny and fate and just the connection, especially. Um, I like that it's as simple as that, but they just present it in like the most grand way possible. I even saw a quote with the Wachowskis talking about that. They were like, we wanted to make a movie about this, but make it like through the lens of something nobody's ever seen before. So I appreciate that, but I can't understand why people would feel like it gets lost at the end, like you guys even mentioned. So I can understand the critics on that. Something else too that I saw was um, a lot of critics kind of said like, you're not going to appreciate the long runtime unless you've read the book. So they kind of felt like only fans of the book were going to be the ones willing to actually go sit for three hours in a theater to see this movie. They were probably right. Because, I mean, I, here I am doing an episode with you guys about one of my favorite movies, and I watched this for the first time, not in theaters. So it's like, I, I I saw the trailer, and I was like, that's cool. But then it's like, it gets mixed reception, and it's not in theaters that long, and then, yeah, it just kind of exits your mind. So maybe they were onto something with that. I mean, obviously, it didn't do great at the box office, so. All right, before we move on from the critical reception, we kind of teed it up a bit earlier. I thought this would be fun. So the cast and crew have had some really fun things to say since the movie's come out. So Tom Hanks has come to heavily praise Cloud Atlas in the years that followed its release. In 2013, he stated, I've seen it three times now and discovered, I swear to God, different profound things with each viewing. In a 2017 interview, he called it a movie that altered my entire consciousness, stating, it's the only movie I've ever been in that I've watched more than twice. Tom Hanks notoriously... When asked, like, hey, do you like your movies, Tom Hanks? And he's like, I don't watch my movies. Um, but Cloud Atlas is one that he has said that he puts on to enjoy and get something out of it each time. So I just thought that was kind of cool. You probably have to with this one, just because if, if you were a member of this cast and crew, you probably worked on some stuff, but then didn't see how some of the other stories that you heard about played out. So I'm sure for like the scenes he wasn't in, he probably wanted to see like, what were they doing there? And he's so rarely part of an ensemble. Like, he's no more a main character than the other five people that play narrators in the other stories. So it's probably kind of an interesting aspect for him as well. Also, Halle Berry stated in an interview, it would be impossible to explain what I really feel or think about the film. It exists on so many different levels for me. I love the totality of the characters. She talked about playing characters belonging to other ethnicities and playing a male. It's just so poignant for an actor and someone like me to be able to shed my skin for once, you know, to do something that I would have never been able to do. If it were not for this kind of project, I still wouldn't have done that. So obviously kind of relating to all the different characters. Hugh Grant, who the most sarcastic like dry humor guy in the world. He even had some sweet things to say. He stated in October 2014, I thought Cloud Atlas was amazing. The Wachowskis are the bravest filmmakers in the world, and I think it's an amazing film. I'm so glad I got to be a part of it. Hugh Grant famously, he had taken five years off of acting, and this was his big comeback. Uh, this was the first movie he had done in years, and it was Cloud Atlas. And he, like we said, he was cast at the last minute, and he's in all six storylines. Of course, in a very Hugh Grant fashion, he did go on to say, Unfortunately, though, I feel like any movie I'm in that is not a light romantic comedy, it does not do well at the box office. And this was no different. <laughs> so That's funny. But he did champion the movie, which was cool. And here's my last little bit here that I do want to talk. I think you guys will get something out of this as well. In October 2013, David Mitchell, the author of Cloud Atlas, called the film magnificent. 
in the lead up, he was very open about the fact that he didn't really know how somebody could adapt this into a movie. But after seeing it, said it was magnificent. Having been very impressed by the screenplay, he was very satisfied by the casting. He especially called out Tom Hanks, Halle Berry, and Jim Broadbent and stated he could not even remember how he was originally portraying the characters in his mind before the movie. He says now when he thinks about his as original characters, he can only see those actors. Oh, wow. He also supported the changes from the novel. He was very impressed by how the Wachowskis and Tick were successfully disassembled the structure of the book for the needs of the movie. Because the novel is like, it's not interwoven, right? It's just it's yes. linear. The novel is Russian doll structure. So the way it works is there are six chapters and it starts with Adam Ewing and it goes up to the far future. And then there are five chapters. So the far future is the middle of the book. And then it goes in reverse order, doing another chapter, ending again with the Adam Ewing story. So, guys, whenever I was putting this together, I was like, how in God's name am I going to get this plot summary down to a reasonable length? Because we always do plot summaries for our TV recaps, for our kind of retrospective and review series, just to make it fun. And I was like, I cannot do it for a way that will make sense. But you know who can do it? My best friends, Austin and Keith. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to list off each of the six storylines and you guys will take turns and I will give you each no more than three sentences. You need to give me a recap of what happened in that story. Are you ready? Ready. I'm going to win. <laughs> Not a competition, but I like the enthusiasm. <laughs> You're like Tom Hanks trying to get Cloud Atlas made. <laughs> All right. So the first storyline, of course, is the Pacific Journal of Adam Ewing, which takes place in 1849. Keith, give me the recap. Three sentences. If you go over, I'm muting your mic. <laughs> All right, so this one taking place in 1849. Mr. Ewing is on a voyage back home from the Pacific Islands. He ends up saving oh. a slave's life, mm -hmm. who ends up saving his when he is poisoned. Oh, well said. He then returns home to join the abolitionist movement. That was really good. Good job, Keith. I like it. I thought there was going to be like more stumbling, like trying to remember, but you nailed it. All right. The next storyline is called Letters from Zettelgem. This is the Robert Frobisher story that takes place in 1936. My friend Austin, it is your turn. A young composer seeks out the legendary composer of his time. That's Good. a comma. That's a comma. Oh. <laughs> comma. And, and asked to be his protege while writing love letters to his lover. Good. He starts up an affair with Vivian Error's wife while composing one of the best works of Vivian Error's career. The two finish the work, but Error's discovers the affair and kicks him out while getting shot in the process. It does culminate in his suicide, but again. We did not have enough sentences. <laughs> but that was really good. That was really good. All right. The next one, Half-Lives, the first Louisa Ray mystery, which takes place in 1973. Keith, go for it. All right. Taking place in 1973, journalist Louisa Ray is covering a story on an oil company mm -hmm. turning nuclear. Yes. She finds out that there is a horrible plot behind the scenes. With the help of the doctor and Keith David's character, she exposes them and incriminates them for their plans. What? I think Keith just said in two sentences, but you nailed it. I love it, Keith. I love it, Keith. The other sentence would be, Hugo Weaving is a villain and he gets killed by a sledgehammer. Uh, <laughs> so there you go. All right. Next one. The ghastly ordeal of Timothy Cavendish, which at the time, of course, was the present day story. In our context, it takes place in 2012. Austin, run it down. A book producer named Timothy Cavendish comes into more money than he could ever expect when his author murders a book critic. 
He spends the movie faster than he can retain it and comes into debt, being forced to reach out to his brother for help. Uh-oh. After years of a strange relationship, his brother locks him in the retirement home, and he is forced to escape with his newfound best friends. There you go. Okay, I was worried that you weren't going to get to the retirement home in time, but you got it. You got it. Perfect, perfect. All right, Keith. I'm curious how this future, like these future stories will go. So in Orison of Sonmi 451, which takes place in 2144, Keith, what do you got for me? Taking place in the futuristic city of Neo Sol in 2144, uh, Somni451 is a artificially created clone, I think, that ends up breaking out of her coded DNA okay. and joins the rebellion movement of that time. Uh, this storyline probably confused me the most, is what I had to add <laughs> in my last sentence. <laughs> Perfect. I like it. I like it. Uh, and then our last one. I hate the title of this. Uh, Slusha's Crossing and Everton After, I guess. I don't know what you would call it. It's just the far future. That's what I call it. it takes place in 2321. Austin, what do you have to say about old Georgie? I'm going to go for double or nothing, if you will. I'm going to do this in one sentence. Whoa, okay. Tom Hanks and Halle Berry hike up a mountain together. All right, Keith, I'm going to let you add one sentence to that. They kill some cannibals. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. All right, guys, it's time to get to the main discussion, but I figured I would have a little just final word here about why this is one of my favorite movies, just to run it down before the roundtable discussion. So this is an interesting one for me because it has become a recent favorite, all things considered. It was a movie I remember seeing a trailer for back in 2012 that I think was like some six minute long Comic-Con announcement trailer, and I thought it looked amazing. But then it came out and I feel like I forgot about it. Probably the bad box office combined with polarizing reception. It kind of just exited my mind in a weird way. But then in 2019, when I was living alone in Houston, I was scrolling through Netflix one weekend. I was in the mood for a thinker, I guess, and just wanted something that I could really spend time and sink into without having to find a whole brand new TV show to start and commit that much time. And I was just blown away. Part of me thought there's no way I could have liked it that much. But then I met, like I mentioned, I've seen it five times in the last two years since first seeing it. And it's just a movie that feels like a magical experience to me. I remember teachers in school saying the word unique is overused because it should only be used when talking about something that is in its own, like by itself in terms of quality. Nothing should ever match up to it. I feel like that applies here. I've never seen a movie like this, and I doubt I will again. I love how it is conveying simple messages like love and connection, but it is presented in one of the coolest ways with these six seemingly unrelated storylines that span 500 years. We get an adventure story with Adam Ewing, a romantic drama with Robert Frobisher, a comedy with Timothy Cavendish, a mystery thriller with Louisa Ray, a sci-fi action joint with Sonmi, and a post-apocalyptic story with Zachary. Each of them are interesting and stand on their own for me. And like, if you break them all apart, I find the story satisfying. But the little and big ways they connect make them all the more fascinating to me. The Cloud Atlas Sextet is one of my favorite pieces of music, along with the Atlas March in particular, the one that plays over the credits. They are always in my head, which in turn just like leaves the movie in general in my head, I guess. And I'm glad it's there because this is one of the few films that I still kind of just think about constantly, at least to this degree. So that's why I wanted to select it for this first episode. And it's time to get into our roundtable discussion. Before we get there, do you have any comments on what I said? It sounds like... uh... Your response to the movie is exactly what the Wachowskis were hoping for when they made this movie. 
I guess so. So I'm glad that uh, it found its way to me so I could appreciate it. So now it is time for the roundtable discussion. For those listening out there, if you're familiar with our show, this is how we usually handle the bulk of the conversation. I thought to, I, we would mix up a little bit for this segment. So Austin and Keith actually are the only ones that submitted points. Again, this is the first time they're seeing it. And I'm basically just going to try and respond whether I'm agreeing or disagreeing. doesn't really matter. It's not a debate. I just wanted them to put all the points in and all kind of play off of that. Because I feel like I've done a decent job of saying why I like the movie. So I want to know why they did or didn't. So this will be led by them. So Austin and Keith, do you want to kick us off with our roundtable discussion? Okay, so let's get into kind of where I think a bulk of the criticism comes from for this movie. And let's talk about the decision to have the main actors portray multiple parts. Um, I think personally, every actor nailed their parts. Uh, but for me, in the beginning, it seemed like everyone was going to be like, related or descendants of one another um when in reality it kind of is just six anthologies these stories really don't impact one another and i don't think any of the characters are really related because of all this i was i was kind of taken out of the first third of the film while trying to track who was supposed to be tied together across the multiple time frames when in reality it it really didn't matter so do you think this dynamic is too confusing or does it add to the film for you well i'll say this um, you know, what I was thinking at the beginning of this movie, then you start to figure out what's what's going on. But when I first saw all these actors playing multiple roles, I was thinking it was going to be like these people are able to travel in time or something like that. That's the vibe they give off at the beginning, especially with the birthmarks, too. Which I'm still confused about that. You'll have to explain that to me later on, too. It doesn't always work, right? It's, it's not 100% perfect in the delivery. I think to Austin's point, you know, I think... Totally reasonably, he thought that these characters would be related, and they're not. Again, we already mentioned the only character that is the same is James Darcy plays Rufus Sixsmith in two storylines. He plays the same character. That's the only, like, natural progression that makes sense on a basic level. Now, why are these in the same actors? I think there's a simple way to look at it, and then a bit more of a deep understanding. I think the simple way is just they personify kind of... Again, it, it's simple and it might always work. It might not work for everybody, but it's just about love and connection. They use the same actors like to show how characters belong together and how they relate to other people. For example, I don't Hugo Weaving is always an oppressor and he's typically an oppressor to Duna Bay characters that she plays. Tom Hanks is a character that is always in conflict, but sometimes leans more evil like he does in the first storyline. But again, he's not all good in the Louisa Ray story. This is a guy that seems good by helping out Halle Berry, but it turns out he was complicit in everything they were doing until he meets her. And he talks about how once he met her, he felt like he's known her his whole life, again, with the whole like passage of souls. And then in the far future, he lets his brother-in-law die because he's a coward. And it's just interesting to see how characters go one way over the other. So to answer your question, yeah, they're not related, but I think they picked actors to play certain roles. I think that's the purpose. Like, for example, did it work for you? The reveal, if you want to like call it that, whenever Adam Ewing gets home and Duna Bay plays his wife after just having the scene where we see his character in Neo Soul die and we realize that they'll never get to be together. But then it's like love perseveres and they have been together. So like, I guess that's what they were going for. So yeah, they're not related. It doesn't always make sense. But does does that aspect of it work for you? That reveal worked for me in the sense where it's like, oh, it's Evan Peters playing Pietro Maximoff in WandaVision. It's like, oh, it's that actress. It wasn't really, like, the story reveal didn't really work for me. I, I thought that story and ending was really sweet, but the fact that it was Duna Bay in that role didn't, like, add to the love story for me. I get that. And, like, the same thing, because that scene is followed up by Hugo Weaving 
And it's cutting back and forth between him trying to keep his daughter and that story played by Duna Bay under his watch. But then it's cutting to him and Neo's soul watching her die. So it's like sometimes he succeeds as the villain, as the oppressor. And then sometimes he doesn't. Duna Bay plays the woman that kills him with a sledgehammer in the Louisa Ray storyline. So it's like they picked actors to play off of each other for specific reasons. Same with Tom Hanks and Halle Berry. It's like over these stories, they have this connection that they keep bringing up. And then by the end, of course, in the far future, they actually get to be together. So that's what they're going for. But I do actually, I get what you're saying, Austin, that sometimes it just feels like, oh, yeah, I got it. It's the same actor. I get why they're doing that. Yeah. But it's not like the love didn't work for you. Okay, I get what you're saying. And I think I would have enjoyed all those connections more if I hadn't spent the first third of the movie trying to figure out, like, okay, who's who's supposed to be related to who? Who's supposed to be influencing who sure. in this film? Like, I, yeah. I was so taken out of the movie trying to track all that stuff that by the time I just kind of let it go, I started enjoying the movie more, but I was also kind of like not fully bought in on the story by that point because I was already an hour and a half into the film. That's a great way to put it. And yeah, I want to hear your thoughts, Keith. But as for the birthmark, it's it's this weird thing where (sighs) there's the passage of souls where actors look alike for certain reasons. But then there's also, I guess, reasons why they don't look alike. Because again, Tom Hanks, Halle Berry, Ben Wishaw, Jim Broadbent, Jim Sturgis, and Duna Bay, they all have birthmarks in each of these stories where they're the main character. And again, I think it's just a whole passage of souls type thing. I think it's kind of cheesy, but I think that's how simple it is. I mean, Rufus Sixsmith says to Halle Berry, that's an interesting birthmark. I knew somebody that had it. It turned out to be his lover, Robert Frobisher, that had the same one. So it's kind of just the passage of time. And I think it's just a visual way to put it. But yeah, that's that's my take on it. But Keith, I want to hear kind of how you'd respond to Austin's point. Did you agree with that? Did you? How did you feel in the beginning? Was it just hard to get on board for the same reasons that Austin mentioned? I think I started just well. I think Austin kind of you put it right. Once you kind of like let go and quit trying to put expectations on it of what it's supposed to be and all that, then it kind of started to make sense a little bit more. I was like, okay, yeah, I think it is just as simple as that. It's just the the passage of souls. They're not really supposed to be related or ancestors of each other or anything, or descendants of each other. They just happen to be the same actor playing playing a different role, yeah. but it's just it's more of a symbolic thing, I guess, that, that life goes on and that people are related and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I think there's a way to do a deep dive analysis on it, but I have a feeling the, the directors would even say the same thing. It's like, yeah, there's no like crazy sci-fi aspect of why it's the same actors or that they're related. It's just... Love perseveres, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you beat evil, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you're corrupted by it and a lot of the Tom Hanks characters, and sometimes you're not. So I think it's as simple as that, but I do, I can definitely see where you're coming from. It's like, is there something more to this? And it can kind of take the enjoyment away, especially when you get that far into a very long movie. So yeah. very well said. I get that for sure. So Matt, you have mentioned the words love and connection quite a bit, and and I do agree with you that that is the central theme of the movie, but I do feel like the love stories in each of these time periods either get lost or are never fully developed. Um, It's kind of what we talked about in our romantic comedies episode, where if you don't fully develop the relationship, it's hard for me to buy in. Um, And and funny enough, for a movie that's already three hours long, I almost feel like I needed more time with each of these relationships. So I'm just curious if you think a miniseries would have been a better format for this type of series to fully develop these relationships and and, and give more time to each story. It's a great question. I think... um... I mean, I guess he could have just adapted his novel pretty linearly the same way he wrote it. And that could have been interesting and fascinating. Could have been a 12 episode show, like six stories forward, six stories back. Yeah, I think they could have done it. I mean, the book's great and it works the way it does it. But I guess the thing that you have to look at it in the movie format and why that worked is because they can cut back so often. And even watching it again, even I get a bit lost at times, like, Whenever Louisa Ray pops up, like, 
like wakes up in her car. I'm like, what? What happened? Oh, yeah, that's right. Last time we saw her, she crashed and fell in the water. It's like, OK, like sometimes you forget because so much is happening. But I do think the fact that they could make it a three hour version and cut back a lot does lead to some great reveals, as I put it, whenever they reveal that Hugo Weaving's playing a character. And it's like, oh, he's oppressing said character again. Or I mean, the reveal that works for me that we talked about already is like, oh, OK, they couldn't be together in Neo's soul, but they were together already in a past life. Adam Adam Ewing and his wife played by Duna Bay. So that aspect works. And I feel like that would have been lost in a miniseries format where they're not cutting back as much. So, yeah, I, I like that we get it in a movie format, but maybe it definitely would have been more palatable in a miniseries. And maybe it would have been a bit more successful, which could have led to a, like a more artistic version, like remake or something in the future. Who knows? I do think, though, having more time with the relationships would have made the tragic stories more tragic because you kind of you get more time with these characters. And then the, yeah. the one at the end with Adam Ewing making it home to see his wife, I think that would have hit better for me. They tell you that he loves her, but they don't really show you it in that storyline. Yeah, not until the end, for sure. I guess, yeah, that's the weird thing. Like, for me, maybe I've seen the movie too many times, but it's almost like I don't look at them as individual characters anymore. Like, I totally agree with what you're saying. I get it. Like, there's not enough, like, when you look at it individually, it's like, I don't care about Adam Ewing being back with his wife. I don't care. I don't know them. I've barely spent time with them. But I look at it more as, with the editing, oh, wow, he just died in the Neo Soul segment, and she just had to watch him die, and she's explaining her truth to this archivist, knowing she's about to be executed, and then it cuts to him finally making it home and getting to see her again. So it's not like I look at it as So and Me and Hey and Heiju weren't together. I look at it as the same characters. It didn't work, but then it did. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's like I look at them as like one thing, but I get why you wouldn't. I just didn't see them as separate characters. Like I've said, I, I kind of viewed yeah. all these as six different anthologies. Yeah, no, I'm kind of with you on that. I think for me, I don't really need too much of an explanation on on the love stories and all that. I think for me, I just kind of looked at it as a collection of short stories yeah. and more of just snapshots in time, which that worked for me. And then we just have an, you know, an underlying theme to all that and connection to all that. That worked for me. I really didn't need too much of a backstory in all these characters and all that. I was cool just seeing them where they were as we saw them. Uh, but yeah, while the storyline's... Did feel connected, and each one flowed well. Uh, I was left with some curiosity of how things got the way they were with the stories taking place in the future. And that just this does kind of contradict what I just said as far as, like, I don't really need too much of an explanation. I was curious, though, of how things got the way they were in Neo Soul in 2144, and then later on with uh, Zachary in the uh, 2300s. Like, how did how did... They get off Earth. How did Neo Soul become the way it is with like clones and slaves and all that in the future? Uh, it would it would have been kind of cool just to get a, like a, just a brief explanation of how Earth transformed in that way. That would be cool. I mean, like in a miniseries format, it would have been kind of cool if like at the beginning of each episode they ex like they do almost like a fast forward. It like it goes from twenty twelve. Like here's what happened in the the yeah, so that we get to Neo that'd be Soul. Really cool. That would have been cool. I like, yeah, like you said, Keith, I like that it's a snapshot and it works for me. I totally get your point. But like, I, at the same time, I kind of don't care how it happened. I like that we go from 2012 where things are fine to then this really weird cyberpunk neo soul. It's like, how did it get there? It's like, well, I guess that's just the natural progression of things. You know, things change so much in time. It's almost like now that it's history for us, we don't think about it. But how did things go from the way they did in 1849 to 1973, you know? Um, and then the far future, the post-apocalypse, it's like, well, what happened? And it's kind of like, well, I don't know. It's just, it's so far in the future, shit's going to happen. So it kind of makes sense. The one thing there, though, is 
The far future story starts on the big island of Hawaii, I believe. Yeah. And then they leave Earth at the end, to your point. So just to kind of clear up that aspect, they're on Earth. Oh, okay. And then they go to like some other moon or planet or whatever for like the, whenever uh, Zachary's older at the end. Okay. I did not know that. Funny enough, that's actually the thing I'm most interested in at the end is them leaving Earth and living on this new planet. I want to see that story of like how how that happened, how how they left Earth, yeah. how they colonized the new planet, how they can like see yeah. Earth. And I, I love, 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 love the visuals in that scene with Tom Hanks telling that story. I think that set looks yeah. so cool. And I, I would have loved to see more yeah. of, the, of the planet that they're living on. Yeah, I really like that part. Yeah, me too. And it sounds like it didn't 100% work for you guys, but again... Maybe it's something on a rewatch, but then the reveal there, because we've seen most of the birthmarks at the beginning, but then the reveal where now that he's bald, it's on the back of his head. And it's like, OK, that's cool. I liked I liked how it focused in on that for like the one of the last shots. Um, that's a great point. Like, it's weird because I like what they showed, but you guys are right. It's almost like they set up such an interesting world that you do want some of the lore. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'd be really interested in getting more. I don't know what how they would present it, but either way, I would be curious how this world came to be in the span of 500 years. So I really did enjoy each of the stories and, and I was really impressed with how different they feel from one another. I think the the special effects in the world building of each time period was extremely impressive too. Um, and I, I think all of this is, is a pretty incredible feat of filmmaking. I did, however, though, I did have a hard time tracking uh, which events of the various stories were supposed to influence the remaining stories. Do you guys think they nailed telling a cohesive story or did it feel like six different movies? Like kind of how I phrased it as like six different anthologies. How did it feel to you guys? I think probably the main thing I took away from it was deja vu in a way in dreaming, you know, how they all had like a, a common dream because Vivian, Vivian, the composer. So he, he had the dream of the song mm -hmm. and the song was also in one of the other storylines, right? Yes. Yeah, so Robert Frobisher composes it. And then Ben Wishaw plays a record store owner that's playing it that Louisa Ray comes to. And she talks yes. about how, but I've heard this before. And he's like, you couldn't. It's so rare. And she's like, but I know it. So, yeah. Yeah, you're right. All the weird feelings that us humans get in normal everyday life, like I said, deja vu. Maybe some things pass down from soul to soul as time goes on. That's the, that's the overall thing I kind of took away. Yes, you're 100% right. That's what they were going for. That's the main thing. That's the important thing, how it pa like how how each like actor or character they're playing influences the next. But to the point we can talk about and some are way better than others. Like some of them are not very good. Like for example, there are the direct connections. Each story has like one for the most part. And for example, Adam Ewing is sick. He's dying because Tom Hanks is poisoning him to get his money and he's writing a journal. Robert Frobisher, years later, while working for Vivian, finds this journal in his library and is fascinated by it and is like, how can he not know this man is poisoning him? Like, he's killing him. And I guess you could make the argument he's not going to let Vivian do that to him, so he kills him. Um, so there are ways that they influence and some that they don't. So, like, did you guys pick up on any of the other ones? Like, that's one example. Yeah, I picked up on the letters one. I picked up on the record store one. I didn't see the, the thing that influences the story in Neo's soul. And I didn't see the thing that influences okay. the story in the future future either. And I don't think there was anything in the in the Ewing one either, because that's the first one. Yeah, well, one one I just remembered was 
uh, the one that Somni, the message that Somni put out. Oh yeah, that's right. She becomes their prophet. I guess I guess I didn't think of that as the the influential event because that one is more like in your face, and and the other ones are more subtle. I get yeah. To Keith's point, the, the direct thing it's not just Somni's their god, but the direct thing is they get to watch the message and where they're watching it. Did we pick up on that? That's the same place yeah. where she recorded it, and that's where all the bodies are. Okay, yeah. So that that one's pretty overt. My favorite one though is Austin mentioned the Neo Soul one. So it's so good because the Timothy Cavendish story is just a comedy. It's like, how the fuck is this going to influence anything? And then, of course, that story being so crazy, he references, man, it would be crazy if they made a movie about this. And they do. Tom Hanks plays Timothy Cavendish in a movie and he says the line, I will not be subject to criminal abuse. This is a line that Yuna and Son Mi are able just to, to this random thing. They don't get to enjoy anything. They see this clip. She says it. Yuna becomes this like, oh my God, like that, that's, incre- that's crazy that this kind of person could do that. Son Mi picks that up. She becomes like this leader because of this. She's this artificially created thing, but they're going to use her as the figurehead because she's basically broken out of her programming, all because they saw a movie based on Timothy Cavendish's life. And then she becomes the prophet for the far future. My point being, the connections get way more interesting in the second half. Uh, so, yeah, while watching the movie, you know, I ended up forgetting about some things that were highlighted more in the beginning. And I wasn't really sure if they wrapped it up at the end with an explanation or anything. But uh, the birthmark shape that everybody had, and we kind of already touched on it. I was just assumed that it was a symbolic thing that yeah. all of their lives are connected. But was it ever really explained at all? Or was that just something we had to, like, we're just, it's up to us to decide what that is? I'm glad you brought this up, Keith, too, because this is kind of one of the bigger issues I have with the film, too, is like they introduce the birthmark thing and they don't fully explain it. Like in the beginning of the movie, they make it seem like the birthmark and then that score that he's composing are going to play like huge, like recurring themes into the plot. And ultimately, they're they're just kind of things that get referenced throughout the remainder of the movie. But in, in the setup of the film, it just it just kind of seems like they're both going to play bigger deals than they actually end up playing in the bulk of the story. Yeah, that, I, I agree. Because the connections at the for the later storylines is so much better. Whereas like Robert Frobisher composing his masterwork really only culminates in Louisa Ray going to a store to follow a lead, yeah. hearing it and going, oh, I recognize this. And then, of course, having Ben Wishaw play the record store owner. But you can take that scene out of the movie and it, it doesn't add to the story in any way, really. Yeah, I guess you could argue that it makes her maybe more passionate about the case because she's reading these letters that he sent to Rufus Sixsmith after Sixsmith is killed. So it's like, oh, I feel more connected to this person. I've heard his master work. Like, I want to follow this through. But even that's me reaching a little bit. It's just, it's again, it's it's a cop out, but it is just about the connection. That's why it was in there. But it didn't have to be for sure. I think for me, I think the first act of this movie is is where I have the most issues with. I, I really did enjoy though the second half as it goes on. Yeah, which is weird because usually we have issues with the third act of the film. We don't usually have issues with the first act on this show. Yeah, I love the ending. I think it's great. I love how everything comes together. Since it's just so long, I guess the first half, you're just trying to figure out what's even going on. Uh, yeah, a lot of introductions. Yeah, and then once you start figuring it out, then then you can start to enjoy the second half. Yeah. I do. My favorite part of the first act, honestly, is like the opening montage that kind of gives you a vibe of uh, the movie. They show some scenes that happen later. And like, I think it ends with Robert Frobisher about to kill himself, but then it just cuts to Cloud Atlas. I'm like, that was cool. That was cool. I love I love this, guys. I love the roundtable discussion. I think you guys brought all the points we needed to talk about. But just with the way we kind of uh, talked about it, I feel like we kind of less focused on some of the inv- individual moments. So I just, you know, before we get out of here, I am curious, like, what was like your just favorite moment of the movie? Like an individual moment. It can be a big thing if you want. I just want to know, like, what your favorite scene was, I guess. 
First one I'll think of is probably one of the more funny scenes is whenever Timothy uh, Cavendish and his fellow nursing home companions are at the bar and they get into the bar fight. Great call. And the old man just says, if all you little Scottish people are here, and then he's like, and he screams like, help, (laughs) help. And then they all just start fighting the nurse and the other uh, nursing home uh, workers and all that. Yeah, that was a fun scene of mine. I, th- I think I have a, a coolest scene in mind, and, and that chase and shootout in Neil's soul is pretty sweet, especially when he collapses the dam. The way that, that water rushes oh, in is pretty sweet. That's a great call. That's a great call. I have so many. I think just to throw it out there, one of my favorite ones, I just love how they present the final scene with um, Robert Frobisher and Rufus Sixsmith, where he's like waiting up there, like knowing he's going to end it all later that day, and he's enjoying a last cigarette, and he's just so happy that because he didn't know it was going to happen, but he's just so happy that like, wow, I actually got to see you again, but I can't, I can't interact with you because I know I won't go through with it if I do. And then that's when the Atlas March comes in, the score kicks in that he wrote. And it's like, I, I just think that scene kind of knocks it out of the park, how the, how it shows them on each side of the tower kind of, and he's kind of trying to sneak out. I just think they presented it so well. Yeah. I think the second one I have... For some reason, it really stands out in my mind is the climbing scene with Tom Hanks and Halle Berry. Yeah. Going up the mountain and he's holding onto that rope. His hands are bleeding and old Georgie's right in his ear trying to tell him to let go of the rope and all that. And he was able to just fight through that Mm -hmm. and able to get her up the mountain. Yeah, For some reason, that one, I thought the scene was cool. I think I'll also shout out, it's one I already said, but I do really enjoy the, the closing shot of Tom Hanks telling the yes. story to his grandkids. Whenever Halle Berry's character is like, those old bones, I did enjoy that line. Yeah, he's going to warm his old bones. Yeah, it's, it's really yeah. sweet. Yeah, that's the last scene itself. We talked about how good the third act is, but that last scene, I think, is just perfect way to close out. So I'm curious, since this is like our, our, our new like favorite movies, ongoing, recurring series, should we? We've never done this before, but since since we're talking about a favorite film of, of one of the three of us, should we give like a numbered rating on how we enjoyed our first watch of this film? Yes, that's actually a really fun idea. It's something we don't usually do. So, I mean, do you guys have a feeling? I know it's kind of still fresh on your minds, and we've talked about it a lot. But do you even know where you would go with your rating so far? I think for me, I'd probably go with a three and a half out of five. Okay. Um, I think I will go. I think I'll go a four out of five. It's definitely something I want to like sit on for a little while and think about it more. It's kind of weird. After our conversation, I want to go back and watch it again, but then I also don't want to spend three hours watching it again. <laughs> I was yeah, just going to say, I was just going to say, I'm not going to pressure you guys <laughs> to watch this movie again, but I genuinely think if you ever do, I, I mean, I would just love to hear your thoughts because I loved the movie when I first watched it, but things just became, it became an all-time favorite going forward. So I would be curious if you guys ever followed up with it, what your like new thoughts would be. Um yeah, I mean, for me, it's a five, obviously. I, I love the movie. It's hard to like go back and remember what I thought exactly the first time, but I do remember loving it. Okay, so let's go ahead and start closing out the show. But before we can do that, we, of course, need to do the Arnie's Podcast Awards. This is a segment where we give an award to anything in this episode. Keith, go ahead and start us off today. I'm going to give the Naughty Nurse Award. Ooh. goes to Mr. Mr. Hugo Weaving as Nurse Noakes. He was creepy as her. But fun character to watch, for sure. I'm going to give the best acrobatics award to David Gyasi as a Tua. Dude, the way he runs oh. up that ship mast and like sprints oh. up it with the yeah, rope cool. and, and descends the sail. So sweet. He gets the best acrobatics. Like I said, the Adam Ewing story has one of the better endings, but I, I don't love it throughout. But I'm a sucker. You guys know how much I love Master and Commander. The practical ship stuff, like actually out on the ocean 
like it's not CG. Man, those were some really cool shots. And like actually watching somebody, not him, I'm assuming, but him do that acrobatic scene is so cool. I got to do it. All right. Look, I, I could have thought of something a bit more deep or a bit more emotional for a movie that I find so deep and emotional for me and so resonant. I got to go with the obvious one. We talked about it. I'm going to go for the worst guest to have at a bar. And it's Tom Hanks going, tequila, couple of fingers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad that's the end of his character in that storyline. I would not have I been know, able right? to do but it. Isn't that cool, though? It's like they give them, it's not like he has to be a main character yeah. in all of them. It's just like a dumb, fun, little quick thing. Okay, well, everybody, thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you hit that subscribe button so you never miss any of our upcoming content. Also, if you wouldn't mind sharing us with a friend, we really do appreciate that so we can continue to grow this show. At The Arnie's is our social, and thearnies.media is the website. Additionally, reviews and ratings really do help us out. Uh, even if you don't want to write anything, a starred review on Apple Podcasts really does make a big difference for our show. We'll be back next week for the continuation of our MCU Phase 1 series and review with The Incredible Hulk. That's right. We talked about it already, but it's worth mentioning again. WandaVision, it was a fun few weeks talking about that show. The finale just happened, so go to your podcast feeds. See our thoughts on the finale. See our thoughts on the season at large. You'll have some fun with that. Austin and I are doing the ongoing monthly series, Co-op Couch. We've talked about our favorite, like our most anticipated games of 2021, our favorite game levels. So check that out. Austin mentioned MCU. So much MCU with, of course, the Hulk, but also Falcon and Winter Soldier. Oh, my God. Just two weeks away. So much exciting stuff. And then finally, you thought we weren't going to do it, everybody? Well, we are. Do you like us breaking down three-hour-long movies? Well, motherfucker, I hope you like when we talk about four-hour-long ones. Snyder Cut. Snyder Cut. We're doing it. And it's going to be bad. And I can't wait. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be good. I'm just, I don't know. It, it may be bad, but there's no way it'll be worse than what we got in theaters. So at least we have that going for us. There's no way it'll be worse, but we're not going to get a scene where Superman returns and Ben Affleck being all like, he can't even fit in his bat suit just goes, no, whenever he sees him while, <laughs> while holding a gun in his hand. He's holding an assault rifle and he sees Superman come back and he goes, whoa, hey. <laughs> All jokes aside, though, dude, I am so excited for March 18th. I can't, I can't wait. wait. We're to gonna see watch this thing. it together. We're gonna, all gonna try and watch it together too. So it's gonna be, I think, a fun experience for us. And how the hell do we break it all down? I don't know. But regardless, it'll be it'll be interesting. I feel like. But yeah, go uh, check us out on Instagram at the Arnies. Feel free to direct message us your thoughts on this episode and future episodes. And let us know, everybody. This was one of my favorite movies. So what do you think of Cloud Atlas? And let us know what are some of your favorite movies. All right, we will talk to you on Tuesday. No Sunday episode this week. We'll talk to you on Tuesday for The Incredible Hulk. And that's the true true.